And Lord, we pray that your spirit would uh, be active and alive, uh, making your word uh, intrusive and transformative towards us. That as we look into this passage this morning, that you would confront us with truth that would transform us to be the kind of people uh, you have designed and desired us to be uh, in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Question. Who here has uh, ever thought to themselves, I have, why is it that bad people, people who are obviously abusing their power, uh, be that financial power, be that political power, uh, and they're abusing it for their own gain, uh, who, who in that they're ignoring others, trampling on them, disregarding them with indifference, why do these people seem to have such abundant lives. Not only do they live in comfort and ease, they're arrogant about it at times. And and they're selfish and they're self-entitled. And they see all the success and all the affluence and all they have uh, due to their own greatness. Like, yeah, I did this, so I should enjoy it. And the only reason you're not like them is because you haven't had the drive and you haven't applied yourself and you haven't had these kinds of ambitions. Have you ever felt like a little tinge of bitterness towards those kinds of people? A little little tinge of envy, maybe, of, of this isn't fair. Have you ever daydreamed then of what it would be like to have their riches, their lifestyle, and felt that the only reason that you don't enjoy that kind of stuff is because your faith asks a different ethic of you? Comparatonitis. It's one of the world's most crippling diseases and conditions. When it gets hold of a person's heart, it distorts their perception of reality. And if it's left untreated, it can lead to things like self-pity. It can lead to things like nurtured bitterness. And the most destructive symptom of all is, is envy. And envy is not when you kind of just want what another person has. Envy is when you want them to suffer or you want them to you know, feel some kind of a pain because of what they have. And it's bad in people in general. It's pretty much the motive for every act of hostility, of war, uh, a relational abuse that we, we see occurring in this world. But in a Christian, it can lead to something even worse. It can lead to a distorted picture of God, his love, his care of us, his awareness of us. It's it's disastrous to the effectiveness of a Christian's ability to live authentically and freely because it reveals a a level of doubt, you know, a level of mistrust in the goodness of God, in the fairness of God. We're out there comparing our lives with others. We're working our way through this letter of James, which has as its main objective that Christians would have a faith that works. That would be a genuine faith that practices what it claims. And where that is not the case, and as James goes along uh, describing what genuine faith ought to look like in this letter, as we find that not to be the case in our lives, that there would be deep and sincere repentance and a renewed love in us for God, a renewed love in us for for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for our our neighbours, for the poor. It's a letter for Christians that serves as a bit of a health check for our faith. However, in our passage today, 
It's very hard to make the case that James has in view here a Christian audience directly. When he says, he begins here, he says, Come now, you rich. And again, like he did in chapter 4, 13, this is a blunt, abrupt admonition. It's lacking that relational language of brothers and sisters or, or fellow believers that James has used consistently uh, by, when he's addressing the church. Even when he's addressing them uh, about their sin and calling them to repentance. It's still brothers and sisters. It's still fellow believers. And we saw that was the case last week when we ought to make plans a certain way. However, here in this passage, there's no contrast of approach. There's no ought. There's no, no contrast of heart to be considered. There's no, there's no call to repentance in this passage. All we have from James in this little outburst is, as, as Sam Elbury puts it in his commentary, unremitting condemnation and a promise of judgment. God's message here is only denunciation. And it seems that James has just stepped outside of the community of faith and is now describing the fate of unbelieving rich, of the unrighteous rich. But given that this letter is addressed to the Christian church, to Christians, it's going to be read in a church setting. But why is James now spilling ink and wasting ink on people who will probably never hear this severe warning? His descriptions of the miseries that are coming upon them. Why go to the trouble of targeting an audience that will never hear about these crimes that they've committed and never hear about how they've led to their misery? Well, James's goal here is not primarily to teach the ungodly rich about the error of their ways, how they've misused their wealth and their resources, but rather his goal is, is to show Christian readers who are on the receiving end of their uh, misuse of, of wealth and power and their practices of what God thinks about what they're doing, of what God thinks about these practices that are going on. Sam Albury again comments, James wants them to overhear, as it were, what, what, what God uh, would say and, and will say to the rich who abuse and oppress and overlook the needs and the dignity of the poor. James's writing now in his little section has, has taken on the tone and the style of an Old Testament prophet who would pronounce doom on the pagan nations for their unjust treatment of God's people and their unjust treatment of people in general. There's no scope for redress. There's no hint of exhortation you know, for change. Just condemnation and promised judgment. Be like an Old Testament prophet. And often the prophets would speak these condemnations and promised judgments against the nations around them. And the point of these things, like when Isaiah or Jeremiah or whoever it was, uh, would say these things, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be like, oh, let's, let's now go on the road and, and go on some kind of preaching tour and bring this warning to the nations around us. There, there was no intent of that. Nor was there even the intent of God's people being asked to go and share this warning with the, the surrounding uh, people. The prophets or the people are not being told you know, to go out there and resist uh, what the oppression of these other people with this message. The objective of God revealing his plans to his people was to enable them to know how to think about themselves. Namely, upon hearing how God plans to respond to the misuse 
of wealth and power, they would neither fear it nor would they desire to copy it, to, to, to um, you know, emulate the practices of those around them. They are not to compare their lives and their lot against ungodly rich in a way that says they're ultimately better off than us, in a way that sort of says that emulates their practices through which they gain and maintain their wealth. Because to go and do that would then position yourselves as enemies of God as well. James is being pastoral. He wants Christians to know how to think about the systems around them through which people make wealth and how they might use their wealth differently based on what God thinks about these practices and uses of wealth. How will God respond to the practices of how we use wealth? It would be very easy to envy these ungodly rich. It would be very easy to aspire to be like them. And it would be or it would be very easy to become bitter because of what they do and how they get away with it. But James reveals you should not envy or aspire to be like someone whose way of life leads to the judgment of God. This is James condemning the wisdom of the world that is unspiritual, that sees wealth with Entitlement, rather than seeing wealth as something to be stewarded. It's not James condemning wealth per se. Riches and assets and stuff is not evil in itself. In fact, the biblical narrative is that these things are God's good gifts for us and we are to derive pleasure from them. We are to use them and enjoy them. And James has said that every good gift comes from the Father of lights, the one who created everything and then gives it to us and entrusts us with it. The strident condemnation comes because they have only sought to use these things with selfish pleasures. They have wasted the abundance of their wealth rather than use it to alleviate the suffering of the poor. In fact, it has been the callous abuse, the indifferent, uh, indifference and the overlooking of the poor that has actually contributed to their wealth, which has actually built their wealth. And James tees off. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries are coming. There's no scope that such mourning, uh, while these are appropriate for what they've done, will actually lead to them being exalted, will actually lead to them escaping judgment. What we have here is a description of the reversal of conditions. They have lived in abundance and extravagance, but it's all fading, it's all rotting, it's all rusting, and it's going to be replaced eternally with misery. But Jesus spoke more about the dangers and the misuses of wealth than any other topic. And maybe it's Jesus' parable in Luke 16 that James has in mind here of the great reversal of fortunes between the rich man and Lazarus. The misuse of wealth and neglect and abuse of the poor does not go unnoticed by God. The parable ends with the rich man desperate that his family would not meet the same irreversible end that he has uh, met. Misery while Lazarus enjoys blessings that were withheld from him in his previous life. James now begins to catalogue the evidence against and the futility of the misuse of wealth with regard to one's eternal standing, with regard to one's eternal fortunes. The first evidence for judgment that James gives is the the hoarding of wealth. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, 
Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and eat your flesh like fire. And you have laid up, you have hoarded, you've just hoarded treasure up in the last days. Here we have a picture of arrogant waste. Wealth just piled up in resources and lavish possessions, just sitting around, rotting, being eaten by moths rather than eaten by mouths. The corrosion of precious metals is called to the dock as evidence against and, and, and a witness to the offensiveness, uh, the arrogance of waste here. When, when riches are amassed for their own sake, when they're just amassed to sit around, the owner had no intention of using them, just simply having them for the sake of having them. It is this waste that testifies against the sinfulness of the heart that, that hoarded it. John Calvin makes these comments. God has not appointed gold to rust, nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. James's point and Calvin's point, God designed wealth. It is to be used to improve the lives of people around us, the less fortunate, rather than just to be amassed. Hoarding wealth and possessions just to have them go to waste or sit in some kind of showroom as, as tokens of our pride is not a picture of success. It is a failure to see what wealth uh, is, a gift to be used and shared. And we can all think of you know, the millionaire who has that uh, air wing hanger filled with luxury cars or, or a custom designed room somewhere filled with shoes. And that's hoarding wealth for its own sake. Like how many cars can you drive? How many pairs of shoes can you wear? But, often, but how often do we buy stuff just because we can? Only for it to, to, to just sit in our garage, just unopened, gathering rust, eaten by a moss. If it's lucky, it'll find its way to a garage sale at some point with the tags still on it. Rather than hoarding past what you need, release your excess towards the needy. And then it's going to have a different kind of testimony about the priorities of your heart. It's going to have a, a different kind of testimony about how you've used your wealth. It won't stand in condemnation of you. Wealth should be a force for good. Wealth should, be, should not be amassed. It should be distributed. And by adding this phrase, the last days, James is reminding us that it would be spiritually ridiculous to hoard wealth when we know that Jesus is returning. And upon that return, there will be judgment of each heart Misery for the arrogant and the neglectful of God's resources, an inheritance of all that is God's to those who actually let their wealth go to enrich the poor. So when you feel that envy or unfairness, it's a sign that you're forgetting what God is or who God is, and you're forgetting what he has promised for those who love him, an inheritance, heaven and all its riches, which unlike the precious items of this world, don't rust don't fade, doesn't get eaten by moths. The next evidence to support the judgment against the rich and to help us think about um, comparing our lives is the extravagance of wealth. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. There's a bit of crossover with the first charge, but now James takes aim not at amassed wastage, but, but flaunted extravagance. 
This moves just past enjoying good things that we have, like Tika rifles and four-wheel drives and holidays and whatever kind of rocks your boat. It's when all we do is self-indulge in these things, in ourselves, when wealth is used like we are the only people in the universe, when all our wealth is actually just spent on making ourselves feel better, making ourselves feel grander. It's self-indulgent use of wealth. Sam Albury observes that we should never be living as well as we could. You grab that sentence? We should never be living as well as we could. The goal of life from a biblical point of view is not self-indulgence, living as extravagantly as your means allows. And then at times, we actually live past that. Did you know that the average uh, credit card debt per person uh, in Australia is $4,200, money that that person that we don't have? Living past, living so extravagantly, But rather, rather what the Bible says is that we should be living selflessly, sacrificially, radically generous lives, planning to use our excess money on the needs of others. Asking the question, is it necessary? Is is it necessary or is it just an unnecessary luxury? Am I saving or am I hoarding? Am I being reasonable or am I being indulgent? The Bible actually commends saving. It actually is for the prudent and good use of wealth. And we read about that in Proverbs 6. James is not taking aim here at at, at saving and prudent use. He is taking aim at self-indulgence over living use of wealth. Sam Elbury's point, James's point, living in extravagance is an approach of heart that shows that my... uh, Experience of the now is all that matters. That I am the center of the universe. It has no regard for investing into eternity. Merely experiencing this life as extravagantly as we can because that's all there is. There's nothing past the grave. There's nothing else to be concerned with. You know, no Christian lifestyle should be proportionate with the level of their wealth. Rather, their generosity should be proportionate with the level of their wealth. The richer you get, the greater the distance between how you could live and how you do live reveals the degree of how you understand the economics of eternity. The more you earn should be matched with more generosity rather than hoarding of stuff, rather than more self-indulgence. God does not give you wealth to self-indulge, but rather to be agents of healing, to be agents of restoration, to be agents of care for the needy. You will always have the poor, Jesus has said. And his followers should be the ones who lead in their care. Now, this is not pity. This is not, oh, there you go, brother, you know, be warm and clothed and well-fed, pious pity. This is care. This is using resources to, to, to enable people to be enriched in life. It's kind of a little bit like what Phil, Phil Barnon's doing in South Asia, you know. 
infrastructure so people can, can earn a living. It's a, it's a little bit like what Rain Carmen are doing in the Philippines, you know, enriching the lives of these people over there. It's a little bit like what, um, uh, who are those people? Bruce and Glennis <laughs> are doing. Uh, I hope they're not watching. Um, you know, up in the Northern Territory. It's a little bit like what we're trying to do with our relationship uh, with Chelsea Primary School, with Kids Hope. And did you know that we, that we um, sponsor a, a, a morning breakfast there where kids who don't have food get to eat of a morning? It's releasing the excesses of our wealth for others. And this is an incredibly severe passage, is it not? Out of all the diagnostic checks that James has prescribed uh, to check the health of our hearts, this one is the most invasive. It's out of our money. But it's like chemotherapy. It has to be invasive because the sin, the cancer of loving money, of comparing our position, of envying other wealth stories, that will rot your soul like cancer. It will eat at your flesh like fire. It will destroy you. It will rot your soul. It will, it will just wipe out the effectiveness, not your faith, but the effectiveness of your faith. And James adds this little reminder of coming judgment, of the self-indulgent life, approach to life, and why it's not to be copied and why it's not to be envied. It's simply piling up a case for your judgment, which is graphically depicted with the phrase, the day of slaughter. And the final evidence that James marshals to help Christians think about how wealth is gained and and how that wealth is spent is injustice. Behold, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And their cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And then at the end of the passage there, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This gets right to the heart of how we feel. Oh, there's no justice in a world like hoarders and the indulgence get away with their unjust priorities. And James uses the example of wealthy business owners who have made their material gain, who, who, who have their material expenses as entitlements that they have, and, and, and so they feel like they can abuse and use people in their practices to gain their own material wealth. And we've all heard of businesses like this, like the ABC, like Qantas, like Commonwealth Bank and Coles and Bunnings and Woolworths. All of these big businesses caught underpaying staff and overpaying executives and shareholders. We've all heard of companies who run sweatshops and set up warehouses and factories in countries that allow them to exploit their workers through oppressive working conditions and impoverished wages. The kinds of practices that don't elevate the life of the workers, but rather, in some cases, lead to their death. James says these practices are crying out against their perpetrators in a language that's kind of reminiscent of the blood of Cain that cried out for justice against Abel. It's not unseen. It wasn't done in secret. It's been noticed. And they're stacking this up as evidence before the Lord of hosts, which is a phrase used to describe God as a mighty warrior, the one in charge of a a heavenly army that's going to come and execute justice. That's what their phrase is often used to describe. James's point is that these practices 
and not to be copied or envied or feared. They will write your soul and they will position you as an enemy of God. And it's just crazy when the Christian church itself engages in these things. Does my head in how many times I hear about a Christian school that underpays its staff because they're, they're, doing, they're not just working, they're doing ministry. Please. What then should we do? How do we avoid our hearts of envying or copying systems of life that's rusting away, that's rotting souls? How do we avoid the foolishness of comparing fortunes that reveals a lack of trust in the goodness of God and his love and his care of us that should be reproduced in our lives? How do we live with a kind of adventurous riskiness, a countercultural selflessness to have a faith that uses wealth with an economic ethic of eternity? Well, it helps to be reminded that Jesus is returning and he will be judging the stewardship or lack of it in our lives. And that's a fact that's kind of littered throughout this whole passage. And there's a kind of a comfort to know that, that God is going to bring justice against these practices. But profoundly transformative of our hearts is the selflessness of Jesus and his use of his wealth and his power towards us. The commentators argue over this last verse. It's a difficult verse to translate. And some argue that the righteous person in this last verse, in verse 6, is the typical follower of Jesus whose practice of faith brings them under the economic persecution from the unrighteous rich, helpless victims in the systems and strategies of the rich and powerful. It's more than plausible. James's point is, don't live like this. Don't make choices about how you gain and spend wealth that impoverish to the point of death. People who can't resist you. Don't, don't make choices about how you gain and spend wealth and rob others of their lives. It's, it's a warning against this. And, and it's also a promise that this will not go unchecked and unnoticed. But it's interesting. James does not say that the righteous person cannot resist you. He says he does not resist you upon being condemned and murdered. And Tim Keller points out that this word here is a voluntary word. It it represents a voluntary action. Here is a righteous person, an innocent person, who, who gives their life to confront. And the allusions to Jesus are hard to miss. This person is not a victim of a system, but a confronter. He takes his righteous life and he holds it up in a way of, in a way against a way of life that robs people of their dignity and their vitality. A way of life that forgets or ignores the ethics of eternity. That says we use wealth and power to stay wealthy, to stay in power, to have what we want. And this is Jesus, and he gives his life and exchanges all his wealth and all of his power, and he becomes powerless. It's his flesh that's destroyed. He becomes the one to face the day of slaughter, so you wouldn't have to. This is how Jesus uses his wealth and power to become condemned, so that you could become uncondemned so that you could become rich in faith 
heirs in the kingdom of God, which is promised to those who love him. That is a radically transformative motive for our hearts that, 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 that motivates and informs how we use our wealth. It's not merely a warning about behavior modification. This is about experienced grace. And Keller is saying, James is saying, remember the one who died for you and who is coming for you, not to condemn you, but to give you your inheritance. And you're going to have a whole different attitude to how your faith works with respect to wealth. It's the kind of thing that cures comparatonitis. It will transform your comparisons of envy to practices of adventurous, loving generosity that sees us, that sees you use your wealth not to be hoarded, just to go to waste or, or, or just on mere self-indulgence, but for the well-being of our brothers and our sisters and for our neighbours. This is deep joy. This is how we give glory to God. And this is how our hearts are continually transformed with respect to the use of wealth. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that um, you care enough for us to write into your word about, about how to live as Christians a healthy and proper use of probably the thing that grips us the most, the thing that we feel the most entitled to, the thing that we think that we've earned the most and that we have control over the most, and that's our wealth and our resources and our assets. And you write into your word a way for us to think eternally, a way for us to think spiritually about how you have moved towards us in your wealth and your power that we might respond likewise and move towards others around us with our wealth and our power. And it's all kind of relative. There's no real line in the sand where, you know, you're, once you get to this level, you can start giving away. It's a condition of the heart. And we thank you that you have not withheld your generosity towards us. And that we live in it every day. Help us to be people heirs of the kingdom of God who are as generous as the Father who brought us in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.